Good morning. My name is Frank. If you're new here, I'm uh, the lead pastor here. I'm primarily the guy you'll see on uh, Sunday morning uh, preaching, but if I'm not here, I guarantee you it will be somebody named Sean who will take care of it. We have a lot of them around here, and uh, so if I'm not here, just know that Sean will be preaching to you. He'll look different, but... uh, It'll be good. So we're glad that you're here. If you're new to Redemption Church, we just want to let you know that we are one church with seven congregations. We are the Arcadia expression uh, of Redemption Church, and uh, we, uh, we are gospel-centered and outward-focused, and we believe that all of life is all for Jesus. And for the last year, we've been going through the book of Romans, verse by verse, and we've gotten through ver- uh, chapter 9, but we're going to take a little break from Romans now, and we're going we're to do four weeks Uh, in a new series called Pictures of the Kingdom. It's going to be all out of Matthew chapter 13, uh, where Jesus, for the first time in Matthew, begins to teach in parables. And specifically, he tells uh, parables uh, where he says, the kingdom of heaven is like this. And and, and so he's talking about that. Uh, We'll get into why uh, we believe he's talking about that. But essentially, it's within the context of him presenting some pretty challenging uh, teaching. And so, because we're starting a new series this morning, we need to do some setup before we actually get to Matthew 13 and, and work through those 23 verses that we're going to go through. So, uh, while we do that, if you could, in your Bibles, turn to Matthew 13 or on your phones or your devices, whatever, we'll eventually get there, but I'm going to spend some time setting this up and giving you some context. In chapters 11 and 12 but especially 12 of the Gospel of Matthew, Uh, Jesus is teaching, which is not unusual. If you know the Gospel of Matthew, 28 chapters long, it's primarily about Jesus' teaching. And and there's five major sections of, of teaching. And so he's teaching... And we begin at this time, and especially in chapter 12, we begin to see his teaching uh, causing some deep division among the people who are listening to his teaching. And we begin to see a wide variety of responses uh, from the people who hear his teaching, which is not unlike today. One of the reasons we're doing Matthew 13 is because it's so applicable to today. Uh, The people then had mixed responses to the message of the gospel as the people today do as well. And so I think this will be helpful for us to go through this. Uh, The great New Testament scholar R.T. France, he claims that the parables that Jesus now brings to the table in Matthew chapter 13 in the wake of chapter 12 Uh, do two things. Number one, they help to explain why the preaching and teaching of the Word of God is met with such a widely diverse and mixed response. And secondly, the teachings of these parables reiterate and emphasize the radical nature that the challenge of God's Word brings to anybody who hears it. We need to understand that the teaching of Jesus uh, that scripture, the Bible, this, this book that is inspired by the Holy Spirit of God is going to challenge people. It's going to push hard on what you think you know. It's going to push against what your nature might be. And, and so these, these parables actually emphasize the radical nature of the challenge that God word, God's word brings to all of us. In other words, Jesus knows there's going to be resistance to the teaching of God's word, to the proclamation of the gospel, and so he tells these parables in that context. And each parable in chapter 13 is about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And and his disciples at one point come to him and they ask him, and they say, why are you teaching now in these parables? And, And Jesus explains and answers. He says, listen, the parables, these parables explain the way things are, 
the way things are supposed to be and the way things will be in the kingdom of God. You understand that when Jesus came originally 2,000 years ago, he came to proclaim and begin to usher in the kingdom of heaven. It's not perfect and it's not completed yet. That will happen when he comes again. But, but he also wants to teach about what that kingdom of heaven is supposed to look like, what it's supposed to look like even for us now as the church is purveyors of the kingdom of heaven. So he says, this is what it's supposed to be, this is what it is, and this is what it will be, and he explains that through these parables. In other words, these parables set out the demands and the paradoxes of the new order that Jesus has come to establish. Let me make sure we get that. The parables that he teaches in Matthew 13 set out the demands and the parables of the new order that Jesus has come to establish. Now, I know some of you are probably new to this and are wondering exactly what a parable is. I know that you know, 30 years ago when I first started going to church and, and hearing preaching and the proclamation of the gospel and that we got to this thing called a parable, I had no idea what it was. I seem to remember from, from high school algebra and geometry there was something like a parable or something like that. I didn't get it, okay? And it would have been helpful if somebody explained it to me. So let me just back up a little bit and explain what a parable is and, and what Jesus is doing with it. The, the Greek word literally means means to cast one thing alongside of another for, for the sake of comparison. It's to take two things, put them next to each other, and look at them and compare them. It, it's, a, it's a juxtaposition or an analogy. So it's an illustration. Uh, a while ago, uh, many years ago, from, from one scholar, I read this, and I thought this was very helpful. Uh, he wrote that a parable is an earthly story that explains a spiritual truth. It's an earthly story that explains a, a paradigm or a principle that might be harder for us to, to grasp. And, and I would say that all of those definitions and understandings of, of a parable are true, but I would also say that they don't quite go far enough. A parable also carries with it mystery that needs interpretation. And they're not always so easily discerned. In fact, we need the Holy Spirit to really be able to fully discern them and understand them. Some hear a parable and they shrug their shoulders and they just walk away. Some people will hear a parable, shrug their shoulders, and even if somebody who knows what it means explains it to them, if they don't have the Holy Spirit, they still don't understand it and they will walk away. I don't know if you've ever, if you've ever read a political cartoon or a satirical cartoon and, and you look at it and it leaves you unmoved and empty and oblivious and confused. Well, that cartoon for you had sort of these parable-like qualities to it. Now, a parable is not necessarily specifically designed to conceal truth from people, but we do need the Holy Spirit to understand them, and we need to dig a little bit, and we need to talk about it, we need to study it. And Jesus spoke in parables in a variety of contexts for probably as many different reasons as preachers today use sermon illustrations. One author writes this, he says, I believe Jesus used parables in order to allow his content to become even more graphic and more memorable. There's even a lot of hyperbole and exaggeration in the parables, as, as you'll see as we get into them. Uh, he, he used them to stimulate the imagination of the hearer. And, and he used them in order to take the lofty principles that he was speaking to, of and, and to help people apply them to the realities of their everyday life. Same reasons that, that preachers today use sermon illustrations. But we also know that according to the text we find in Matthew chapter 13, that Jesus uses parables specifically in the case today 
Because many people have closed their ears to what God has to say. And he uses them to actually not try to bring people together, but rather to accentuate the divide between the people. Which is interesting to me. Because we live in a culture today, I believe, where, where in many respects, people are trying to get people who don't believe the same thing to just get on the same page and get along and tolerate each other. And we're really not that far off. And I believe this and you believe that. But it's all okay. It'll all work out in the end. And Jesus comes along and tells these parables and he says, no. There is a divide. There is a deep divide between the people who know me and the people who do not. Let's not pretend. Let's make sure we understand that there is a divide. And I'm going to teach into that divide so that maybe those people who, 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 who find themselves not agreeing with me will at least hear and start to think about what I'm saying to them. Thomas Long who has written a commentary on Matthew, he writes this about Matthew 13. Parables are simply profound. They are simply profound. They are simple, but for those with eyes to hear and uh, eyes to see, that would be a trick. Jesus had to be involved in that. But for those with eyes to see and ears to hear, they are also profound because they open up deep insights about the ways of God and the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. And so let me now talk just a little bit about the rhetorical or literary context of Matthew 13 because some of his teaching prior to this, especially in 12, has been what some people would say very controversial. Let me give you just three examples. Number one, in chapter, in chapter 12, Jesus teaches that if you're not with me, then you are against me. If you are not with me, if you are not going to stand with me and declare that you are with me no matter what, then by definition, you are against me. In other words, Jesus plainly teaches that there's no way for a person to be neutral about Jesus. You can't be neutral about him. And this teaching is not well received by people then or today. People don't like this teaching very much. I, I run into people all the time. There's, Man, you and that Jesus guy here, you talk about Jesus all the time. Let me tell you something. It's not that I'm against Jesus. You know, Jesus is cool. He's an okay guy. I like Jesus. He's all right. But, you know, Jesus does his thing. I do my thing. Jesus doesn't bother me, and I don't bother him. And it's all good. Not according to Jesus. And there's a, by the way, I want to just say, there's a huge difference between being, being with someone and being for someone, or being with something and being for something. There's a huge difference. A lot of people are for someone or for something for a time. Uh, sports fans especially are like this. Have you ever noticed that? Sport, especially in Arizona. I mean, sports fans are for a sports team as long as they're doing well. But the minute they start to go south, they're not for them anymore. That's not being with that sports team. I mean, I mean take the Cardinals, for instance. Cardinals can have a bad play, and you've got the most ardent Cardinal fan going, that's it, I'm done. One bad play, one interception, one sack, I'm done, that's it, forget it. Get rid of the Doritos, I'm done. All right? That's what's, that's if you're for something. But if you're with something, it means you endure. You stand with through everything. You stand with through thick and thin. Paul writes in Philippians about what it means to be for. He writes in Philippians chapter 3 this. He says, I want to know Jesus and I want to know the power of his resurrection. We're all okay so far. And then he says, 
and I want to share in his sufferings and become like him in his death. Oh. See, that's with. That's with. We endure everything. And Jesus clearly says, you need to be with me. If you're not with me, then you are by definition against me. Here's the second thing that's probably a little controversial. He says, a tree is known by its fruit. And he follows that up by saying something about our hearts, the human hearts. He says, it's out of our hearts that we speak. In other words, Jesus teaches that the fallen, sinful heart of human beings is evil. Now, people do not like this teaching at all. They didn't like it then. They especially don't like it today. In our culture, here's what we teach about the heart. We teach in our culture, everywhere you go, it seems, that the heart is the only pure, good, noble, righteous, and trustworthy thing. That's the only thing that we can trust. It's the only thing that's good. I, I have to search my heart. I have to believe in my heart. I have to know in my heart. I have to think in my heart. Everything is driven by, by your heart. People give advice all the time. Well, what does your heart tell you? Trust your heart. Your heart's going to be able to tell you, and Jesus says that is not true. Your heart is deceptive and wicked beyond all understanding. You cannot even understand your own heart. The Bible always teaches that our hearts are the problem, our fallen hearts are the problem, and that it's our hearts that need conversion. And by the way, when the Bible talks about the heart, what it's really talking about is, is our inner, our, our, who we are at our core. The, the words used to translate heart often carry with it the idea of your guts. It's who you are. It's it's your soul. It's not this thing that pumps blood. It's, it's who you are at your core. That is what needs to be converted by God for you to finally be good. Because apart from that, it is not good. And then perhaps the most shocking teaching to set up the kingdom instruction in chapter 13 is this. Jesus is teaching and his mothers and his, his, his mothers, his mother and his brothers are outside. His, you know, Mary and his biological brothers are outside and somebody comes to him and says, hey, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside. And essentially, here's what he says. He says, I know I may share DNA with them, but that's not the most important thing. Wow, really? And he goes on to say, rather, I am here now with my mother and my brothers and my sisters. I'm, I'm here right now with my family. Those of you who are with me here for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, that is my brother, my sister, and my mother. In other words, the most important thing to Jesus is whether or not you are connected to him in salvation. And, and, and I imagine you can start to see the divide that this is, this is. This goes against everything in their culture and what they believe, and people don't care for this teaching either. Jesus, you mean I need to prioritize you above my blood family? And the answer to that is yes. Yes. So now we're ready. Jesus begins to teach that the kingdom is made up of fruitful people who do the will of the Father. That's what the kingdom looks like. And he uses these parables to start to explain it. And he's got the parable of the soils, which is the first one that we, we look at today. And then there's the parable of the weeds. And then there are parables about growth. And then there's parables about treasure. And, and, and one of the things about Matthew 13 is we're not exactly sure if this is 
perfectly chronological. And the reason we say that is because we know that Jesus probably taught these parables on multiple occasions and in multiple contexts and that his disciples often came to him and asked him questions about what he was teaching. And so perhaps by the power of the Holy Spirit, Matthew arranged chapter 13 so that it was easier on the reader. And so today what we're going to look at is that first parable. It's the first parable he tells in all of Matthew, as a matter of fact. It's the parable of the soils. Some people call it the parable of the the sower. And it's his first one. And and we'll look at verses 3 through 9. That's when he tells the parable. And then he has a little interlude where the disciples ask him about parables and he explains that. We'll spend a little bit of time on that, verses 10 through 17. And then he actually explains the parable he tells in verses 18 through 23. We'll spend the bulk of our time with that. Now, the parable of the soils, or this first parable, the parable of the sower, can also be called the parable of the readiness of the hearers of God's word. The parable of the readiness of the hearers of God's word. And there are four stages of readiness that Jesus explains in this parable. There's... One stage, which is where somebody will hear the proclamation of the gospel or the teaching of God's word, and they simply won't. They simply will not listen. They have their spiritual force field or Teflon up, and and everything just pings off of that, and they are not listening at all. The second uh, group is, is the people who listen, but they listen superficially and selectively. Oh, I like that, and I like that. I don't like that. I don't like that. That's a problem. Maybe I'll latch on to this over here. Then the third stage is those who listen, but they're preoccupied and they're distracted. And then the fourth stage is the only stage where there is actual salvation. It's those who hear, appropriate that hearing deeply in their life, and they live. And they live. And I want you to know that every pastor, every preacher, and every teacher, every elder in any Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church knows these four stages well. We see them all the time. And it's why we pray so diligently every Sunday for the people who are going to be coming to church, that God would prepare their hearts, that God would prepare their soil so that they would be receivers and hearers and understanders and appropriators of God's Word and so that they wouldn't be those first three stages. And you need to understand, this also teaches that the, the people who teach on Sunday morning, we can have great messages, we can study communication and rhetorical principles, and we can be creative and funny and cool and entertaining. But if the hearts of the hearers, if their soil isn't ready, then it really doesn't matter. Understand, the work of the Holy Spirit must precede the church and its messenger. The work of the Holy Spirit must be working in everyone before we even gather. When we gather for church, there should have been work by the Holy Spirit, prayers, thoughtfulness about what's going on here. It's very, very important to understand this principle. And clearly, as Jesus teaches in these 23 verses, it's not just a hearing that counts, it is understanding what is being said. In other words, kneading and knitting the Word of God into your life, into your heart, and into your worldview. So let's go to the text now. Let's start with verses 1 and 2. They're editorial transitional verses. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea and 
Great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the, on the beach. Not uncommon that there were so many people who wanted to hear Jesus teaching, even though they didn't necessarily like his teaching, that, that he would actually have to get into a boat and kind of push out and sit in a boat while he taught all the people uh, on, on the beach. And by the way, in first century Mediterranean culture, that was the common position of teaching authority was to, was to sit down. Okay? If, if we were to get somebody from the first century to sort of do some time travel, a little Doctor Who action for you maybe, and, 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 and come to Redemption Arcadia on Sunday morning, they would look at me standing on this platform and think that was odd. They would say, why doesn't he get a chair and sit down there? That's, that's the proper authoritative position in which to teach. And so he starts in with his first parable, starting in verse 3. And he told them many things in parables, saying, a sower, a farmer, went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds, birds came and devoured them. Other seed fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produce gain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. We'll comment on this parable when we get to verses 18 through 23, when Jesus actually teaches on the parable. I thought it would be good to just go to, go to the original source for our material this morning. But one thing I do want to uh, just have you keep in mind is that really the focus of this parable is the soils, not necessarily the sower. Okay? And then some questions come in, in, in uh, verses 10 through 17. The disciples came to Jesus and they said, why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus answered and said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, for the one who has more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from, from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, and then he quotes from Isaiah chapter 6, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes... Have, have closed, they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. I will tell you, one of the, one of the frustrations about taking 23 verses at once is that I would love to spend one whole Sunday just on these uh, eight verses. Uh, so I'm going to have to kind of skim over it, but I do want to ask some questions of it and, and make some points about it. For instance, what are we supposed to make of verse 11 where Jesus says, to you it has been given, but not to them. What do we make of that? And then Jesus follows up right away with this statement. To the one who has, he'll be given even more, an abundance. But to the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. We hear that today and we go, well, that's not fair. That doesn't sound like equality to me. I thought Jesus was fair and for equality. What's going on here? I don't like that teaching. Jesus knows. 
He knows that sometimes his teaching is really rough and hard for us to understand and we don't like it. We have values and he has values. Guess what? He's God. His values trump. Okay? And understand, he's using some powerful language here. Okay? Then Jesus gives his answer. He says, the reason I do it is because people are dull. He's not saying that people are boring. He's not saying, wow, these crowds are really boring. I'm going to start speaking. No, he means unresponsive. They are, they are dull. They are unresponsive to spiritual truth. And speaking in parables actually proves it. The great New Testament scholar William Hendrickson says of verses 10 through 17, Jesus now speaks in parables in order to A, further reveal the truth to those who have accepted it, and to B, further delineate those who have rejected the obvious. To further identify and delineate those who have rejected the obvious. In other words, those who have rejected the obvious, they don't get it. They probably never will get it. And even if I perform miracles and signs for them, which many of them ask for, they still won't get it even them. How many times do we see in Scripture or here in our own lives, you know, if, if Jesus would just do a miracle or a sign for me, then I would believe. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. It happens all the time in Scripture. In, in John chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. He's been dead four days. Scripture even says he stinks he's been dead so long. King James Version says he stinketh. I like that word. Stinketh. Jesus raises him from the dead. Some people believed, but many others kind of went, eh, that was interesting. Shrug their shoulders and, and walk away. David Hill says this. The people who don't get it, he says their obduracy I like this quote because I like that word. I'll explain that in a second. Their obduracy will not be penetrated by any teaching, no matter how beautiful, clever, or rational. Does anybody know what the word obduracy means? John, you're, you're a professor of English. You don't get to answer. Anybody know what the word obduracy means? I had to look it up. And not only did I have to look it up, but I also had to go to a website where it would teach you how to pronounce the word correctly. It's obduracy. The word literally means pig-headedness. Somebody with a stiff neck. Somebody who is stubborn. Somebody who just refuses to see. So that brings up some questions. People are dull to, who are dull to spiritual truth, are, are they only those who are steeped in obvious sin? Those of us in the church tend to think that. We think, you know, if somebody won't hear the gospel, if somebody doesn't listen to the teaching of the word of God, they must be steeped in sin. Is that the only type of person that doesn't hear the gospel? No, no. Deeply pious and religious and moral people also don't hear the gospel. People who have their own morality staked out. People who are religious about other things. They also won't hear it. Weren't the Pharisees and the scribes practicing obduracy to Jesus' teaching? Yes, they were. And what about when an entire culture with, with all of its cultural wisdom is completely unmoved, even hostile to spiritual truth, to Jesus? They're hostile to Jesus. What do we do then? Do we as Christians, do we as a church, do we still have a responsibility to, to enter the public sphere, the common marketplace of, of, of where everything is happening? Do we still have a responsibility to go and try to gain a hearing and to teach? Do we have a responsibility to enter the fray? Even if, as the language seems to indicate here, God has specifically taken some of them and given them hearts to hear and, and has specifically given other people hard hearts, do we still have a responsibility to go? Think about that. We'll... We'll talk about that in a couple of minutes. 
Now Jesus comes along and he explains the parable in verses 23 through 28. Uh, I'm sorry, 18 through 23. He says, Hear then the parable of the sawyer. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself. I'll come back and talk a little bit about that. But endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, on account of the faith, on account of, on account of being a Christian, on account of standing with Jesus, immediately he falls away. And for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. And for what is sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixtyfold, and in another thirty. So here we go. There are four responses to the sowing of God's word, to the sowing of the seed, to the sowing of the gospel message based on the readiness of the soil, the heart of the, of the hearer. And the first one is the one that won't even give a hearing to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel being that, that you and I were born into sin as a result of the fall in Genesis chapter 3, that, that, that we have a human nature that is, that is unholy and naturally resistant uh, to God and, and sinful. We... We sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. That's our natural state apart from Christ. But, but God in his love and graciousness and his mercy, he sent his son to, to, to live the perfect life and to die as the perfect sacrifice for the forgiveness and the payment of our sins and then to be raised from the dead to, in victory over Satan's sin and death and to give us eternal life. For those who would embrace Jesus, that's the gospel. This is the hearing that won't, won't, the spiritual Teflon is up. Ping, ping, I don't need to hear that. I'm better than that. Ping, ping. This is goofy. This is a myth. Why do people believe such fantasy? Ping, ping, ping. That's just ancient stuff. Ping. The seed is tossed, but the heart is set against the hearing. And, and, and it's, it's a combination of things. It's, it's, it's sin and 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 wickedness of the fallen nature. It's Satan and his work being sown in, in the lives of the person who doesn't listen. But it's also, again, it's your own religiosity. It's your own morality. Your own religious system or morality will not give a hearing to God's word. It gets in the way of God's word. And this is a warning from Jesus. He says, is this you? You need to lose that spiritual Teflon and, and, and start to listen to what God is saying to you. The second one is the one who does hear the gospel and recognizes that there is value to it, but it's a sad and tragic hearing because it lacks a depth of understanding. Specifically, there's no root. There, there's no tethering. The, the, the belief isn't tethered to anything significant. When I was a kid in elementary school, it was back in the 60s, something like that, and, and I, was, I remember a couple of times um, we would take seeds and we would plant them in wet paper towels. And, and like overnight, the seed would sprout up and that was really cool. But if we didn't immediately the next day transfer that seed into good, deep, hardy soil, th then that sprouting would wither and die almost immediately. Well, this is, this is the same thing. You need, you need to be tethered. You need depth. 
You see, it's not enough for someone to just pray a prayer that they believe in Jesus or to walk an aisle or check a box. That's, that's really, that's one of the great fallacies of Christendom in the 20th and 21st century that you just walk an aisle and check a box and you're good. Because that's only the beginning. It's, it's, like, it's like running a marathon, man. I, I, I tell you, some of you know I run marathons. I'm not very good at it. I'm pretty slow, okay? And, and what happens when you run a marathon, like for a guy like me, is when you register, you have to tell them the time that you think it's going to take you to run the marathon. So I'll send in my time to them, and then they tell you where you're supposed to go at the starting line because you have this narrow starting line and 10,000 people standing there. Not everybody can stand on the starting line. And so I'm usually back at a place where literally the gun goes off and it takes me two minutes of running just to get to the starting line, which kind of sucks, <laughs> frankly. That's why we have those chips in our shoes. But this would be like me running that two minutes, passing the starting line, and then going, okay, I'm done. I checked the box, man. Okay? The Christian life is a marathon. It, it, it needs tethering and it needs deepness. This happens all the time. It's, it's known as shallowness. Uh, David Hill calls this the person of the moment. And Jesus asks, are you, are you that person? Are you the person of the moment? Oh, that sounds good right now. It's the person who, who only lives in the moment and has no appreciation for any perspective other than the comfort that he or she will experience right now. What's good for me right now? It's the one who fails to see the future consequences attached to today's behavior. It's the person who has no hope because they can't see into the future. They don't understand what Christ has done for them and that there is something so much better that is coming. Specifically here, Jesus chalks it up to the challenges of the faith. He says, it's going to happen when, when because you're standing by my name, there's persecution, there's oppression, and there's marginalization. Let me ask you something. Do you think that we are headed toward more public sphere and marketplace acceptance of Christians or less? It's not a trick question. Less. We need to be rooted. We need to be tethered we need to be deep it's more than just coming on sunday morning and getting your fix it means being involved in the community it means going to rc's it means reading scripture and praying and being in in connected uh, community with other people we need to be deep we need to lean on each other we need to be there for each other we need to be a community of faith and here's what's important it says in verse 21 there is no root in him, Jesus says. And a lot of people look at that and say, yes, yes, my root, my ability, my strength, my power. I gotta work harder, I gotta try harder, I gotta pull myself up by my own uh, spiritual bootstraps. It's all up to me. No, that's not the root he's talking about. He's talking about the root that you get when you embrace Christ and the Holy Spirit comes to dwell inside your life. That's the root. You need the root of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is way stronger and way better than the root of yourself. The root of yourself will always fail you, but the root of the Holy Spirit is what gives you life, and that's the root you need. And Jesus looks at you and says, is this you? Are you the one that hears it, and for a moment it sounds good, but when the tough times come, you walk away? The third soil is the one who hears the gospel, but because circumstantially, it's difficult for them to see their spiritual need, so then they, they are seduced and distracted into a life that does not abide in or depend on the gospel. This is actually shallowness the other way. 
There's a shallowness that doesn't want to get involved in anything hard, but there's also a shallowness that gets distracted and seduced by your other gods. Both of those things are a shallow, shallow faith that doesn't make any difference. And that word in verse 22 translated deceitfulness is often used to describe seduction. Listen, if you're smart, you're healthy, you're wealthy, you're successful, and everything you touch seems to turn into success, you might in one moment hear and appreciate the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the problem is is that eventually you will be seduced and deceived by your other gods because for the time being, those other gods have not let you down. But the truth is, is that false gods never fail to fail. That's the deceitfulness. They will eventually fail you. They will eventually let you down. And it's the gospel that will not let you down. Listen, this soil with the thorns, the the seductions of deception, of, of health and wealth and success, this is often even a bigger challenge than the other soil, the, the, the oppression and the, and, and, the, and the tribulation. Because those false gods of ours are so luring and so seductive. And so like the other two soils, this third soil has no fruit, there's no life, there's no salvation. And again, Jesus would say, is this you? Have you got your priorities messed up? Is Jesus speaking to you? But then the last one, this is the one, this is the hearer who hears and and understands and drinks deeply of the faith and grows roots and is tethered and submits to the Holy Spirit and produces a harvest. He produces fruit. There's fruitfulness there. And Jesus says a hundredfold, sixtyfold, thirtyfold. This is interesting. I I studied a little bit about first century agriculture. I thought it was really interesting. Uh, Back then, for a farmer... If the yield on his crop was five to 15-fold, that was good. And 10-fold was actually the excitement threshold. Can you imagine now Jesus is telling this parable and he's talking about 160 and 30? They're going, wow. Jesus says when that good soil is activated, there will be fruit. And he says, with man this is not possible, but with God all things are possible. And he says, kingdom people bear fruit. There will be a noticeable change in your life, not because it's mandated, but because it's inevitable by the power of the Holy Spirit living in you and tethering you to Jesus. And also notice, not all the fruit is the same. Isn't that interesting? Some is 100, some is 60, some is 30. Do you understand that my fruit's going to be different than your fruit? Your fruit's going to be different than mine and different from others in the room? But that's what makes the church so wonderful. We are a body with many different members and many different productions of fruit, all because the harvest maker, God, is doing it through us in the way that he sees is best for us. I want to close the last few minutes with just three observations. Here you go. Here's number one. We, we've talked about the soils and the tenderness and the depth and the receptivity of the, of the heart and its ability and desire to understand the gospel message. But what about that sower's perspective? Let me just take a minute to talk about the sower's perspective. I want you to consider, like I said, I looked at this stuff. This farmer is not the normal calculating farmer. He's not. Rather, this farmer throws out seed with reckless abandon. He's he's not the type of, I'm glad you see where I'm going, my brother. That's good. Listen to him, okay? If you're not listening to him, listen to him. If you're not listening to me, listen to him at least. 
This is not the type of actual farmer you would encounter in their culture. That's a waste of seed if he throws it on the path or on rocky soil. But Jesus is trying to make a point. Do you see the hyperbole that Jesus uses in these parables? Hundredfold, sixtyfold, thirtyfold. This farmer that's throwing seed everywhere. This farmer throws seed everywhere and in every direction, even in directions that he knows probably won't yield any harvest. Or, or if it does, it's going to be minimal at best. And he also knows he's going to take his lumps. He's willing to take losses with the seed that he throws out. But he is extravagant. He is oblivious to the risks. He's a farmer who is oblivious to the risks. Are you an evangelist who is oblivious to the risks? He is obedient to proclaim the gospel message and he trusts God. He knows he can plant and water and analyze, but he knows also that God causes the growth. And therefore, it makes it easy for him to go out and be extravagant. His call is to be obedient. Arcadia, let's be extravagant with the gospel message, not calculating with the gospel message. Let's spread and sow our seed everywhere because God is the harvest maker. He'll make up his mind what's going to produce fruit and produce results. And let him do it. He's better and stronger than we are anyway. We don't have to worry about it. We can just be extravagant. The work of the gospel always takes its blows and will have seemingly over, uh, 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 obstacles that are impossible to overcome and, and, and losses that seem way too big for us to bear. But an abundant harvest is sure because God guarantees it. He says, I am going to make the harvest. I'll direct the results. Don't you worry about it. The second observation is about the public sphere. I mentioned this earlier. In light of the above observation, Here's a question that we have wrestled with a lot lately in our staff meetings and our pastor meetings and stuff. Let me just give you the question. Here it is. How do we as Christians, how do we as the church with a message that we know is life-giving, helpful, and full of grace and truth, how do we gain a hearing in the public sphere, the common spaces of culture and society? How do we gain a hearing there where it appears that people have closed their ears and closed their eyes and have little patience for trying to understand the gospel. How do we do that? How are we to offer critique of the predominantly majority culture and worldview on, us, on issues such as sexuality and justice and, and poverty and abortion and ethics? How do we do that? Is it possible to justly and graciously criticize without demonizing a culture that doesn't seem to want to listen to us? Can we do that? And before you answer that question, let me, let me just let you know, the culture thinks that about us too. They think we've closed our ears and our eyes. They're not the only ones that have that perspective. This is hard. But using the perspective of the sower, I think we can argue that yes, we still do enter the discussion, as Jesus always said we should enter the discussion, but we do it with these characteristics. We are generous, gracious, and long-suffering. We go and we are generous, gracious, and long-suffering. And we know that there are going to be setbacks. But despite the setbacks, there is a harvest that will be made because God is the harvest maker. He calls us to be ambassadors. He promises us a harvest. Our job is obedience. Oh yeah, I use the O word, obedience. We are called by God to obey going out and spreading the word. And we need to take a long view of this. We need to take a long view of this. I, I was in a small group last year with, with a group of guys and, and David Van Slyke was one of them. And David used to tell us all the time, guys, we need to be cathedral makers. 
And the first time he said that, I, uh, we were like, okay, what do you mean, David? And he said, well, I'd be glad to tell you. And he'd get up and get the marker and he'd start teaching us and it was wonderful. And he would teach us that a thousand years ago when they would start to build a cathedral in, in Europe, it might take more than a hundred years to build a cathedral. That means that if you're going to build, if you're going to work on that cathedral, you might not ever see what you built. You might not ever see the results of what you're pouring your entire life into. We are called to be cathedral builders. We are called to take a long view of this. I would argue that one of the greatest liabilities of the body of Christ, the church, is that most of us will not start or participate in anything that we won't see completed or won't enjoy the results of. And so 99% of churches that are planted and make it past that first five years, 99% of them die after a generation and a half because of this one principle. They die after 60 or 70 years. And the last 30 years of their, quote, life is spent plateaued and declining and dying. You and I, we need to have a lavish and generous and long-suffering view of the gospel that, 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 that understands long obedience in the same direction regardless of the results that we see. God promises there's going to be a harvest and so we need to place our faith in that. And finally, the last observation, God initiates and we respond. God initiates and we respond. I am telling you, I am amazed at how many people who know Christ believe that the opposite is the way it's supposed to work. I initiate, God responds. I initiate, God comes over and blesses what I have started. I get an idea. I don't check with God. I just do it. God's supposed to come and bless me over here. God, I'm over here. God, I'm over here. God, 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 I'm over here. No, 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 no. We need to look at where God is working, what God is doing. God initiates, and we need to go there. We need to understand that. And God is initiated by telling us to be lavish about throwing our, our seed. If you're somebody who thinks that you just start something and God is the one who's supposed to respond, that's a lame understanding of the gospel. He is the one preparing the soil for us and he calls us to obediently sow the seed and we will all reap a harvest because he is the harvest maker. And notice, isn't it interesting that there are various degrees of return? This is the second time I've mentioned this. There's, there's varying degrees of, quote, productivity, even in the good soil. You know what I think that's about? I think that's about contentment. I think it's about contentment. How many of us get so wrapped up in results that it engenders in us pride, envy, covetousness, and jealousy. In ministry? This drives me crazy. Listen, I love competition. I am a competitive guy. A few of you have been to, with me to my daughter's volleyball games, and you know how embarrassing it is to be there with me. I, nobody yells louder than I do at these games. And, and, and I, I mentioned this earlier, I, I, I'm still stupid enough at my age to run marathons. I am a competitive guy. But when it comes to ministry, this should be a cooperative endeavor where we are with everybody else doing the work and we celebrate those victories, no matter whose victories they are, because ultimately they are all God's victories, no matter who is doing the work. Do you understand that? 
Paul says this is about humility. And he says in Romans chapter 13, you had to know I'd work Romans into this. I just can't get away from that. In Romans chapter 13, he says we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And I personally believe that the reason he puts rejoice with those who rejoice first is because that's a lot harder for us to do than to weep with those who weep. It's hard for us to rejoice with those who rejoice, especially in ministry. But we should lay down that pridefulness and that envy and in, in humility celebrate those victories with them because God God is producing a harvest and wherever he's producing a harvest that's a good thing and it's something that he promised us that he would do kingdom people bear fruit that's what Jesus is saying and God is the is the maker of that harvest 